Section number 45 of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott from 1820 to 1867 part two richmond's death was as unusual as his life two accounts are given of the cause one states that he permitted a pet dog to touch a cut in his face the other account has it that he was bitten by a tame fox at a fair in sorrel and the date of richmond's death late in august of 1819 exactly two months from the time he was bitten at sorel which is the length of time that hydrophobia takes to develop in a grown person would seem to substantiate the latter story he was travelling on horseback from perth to richmond on the ottawa and had complained of feeling poorly a small stream had to be crossed the sight of the stream brought the strange water delirium to richmond when he begged his attendants to take him quickly to Montreal. It needs scarcely to be explained here that hydrophobia is not caused by lack of water, but by contagious transmission. The feeling passed, as the first terrors of the disease are usually spasmodic, and the governor was proceeding through the woods with his attendants when he suddenly broke away deliriously, leading them a wild race to a farm shed there he died during the night crying out as the lucid intervals broke the delirium of his agonies for shame for shame lennox richmond be a man can you not bear it public affairs are meanwhile passing from bad to worse william lyon mackenzie has become leader of the agitators in his newspaper the advocate of toronto a band of young vandals sons of the ruling clique wreck his newspaper office and throw the type into toronto bay but mackenzie recovers three thousand dollar damages and goes on agitating four times he is publicly expelled from the house and four times he is returned by the electors what they are asking these agitators branded as rebels expelled from the assembly in some cases cast in prison by the councillors, in others threatened with death. Control of public revenues, reform in the land system, municipal rights for towns and cities, the exclusion of judges from Parliament, that the council be directly responsible to the people rather than the Crown. Since 1818 the reformers have been agitating to have wrongs righted and for nineteen years the clique has prevented official inquiry, gagged the press, bludgeoned conventions out of existence, and thrown leaders of opposition in prison. Mackenzie now makes the mistake of publishing in his papers a letter from the English radical Hume, advocating the freedom of Canada, from the baneful domination of the mother country. At once, with a jingle whoop, the loyalty cry is emitted by the family compact. It is not this 
what they have been telling the governor from the first these reformers are republicans in disguise by trickery and manipulation they swing the next election so that mackenzie is defeated from that moment mackenzie's tone changed it may be that losing all hope of reform he became a republican if this were treason then the english ministers who were advocating the same remedy were guilty of the same treason with mackenzie secretly and openly are a host of sympathizers dr rolfe tom tabot's old friend come up from the london district to practice medicine in toronto and van egmond who has helped to settle the huron tract of the canada company founded by john galt the novelist and some four thousand others whose names mackenzie has on a list in his carpet-bag all the autumn of eighteen thirty seven fitzgibbons now commander of the troops in toronto hears vague rumors of farmers secretly drilling of workmen extemporizing swords out of skies of old soldiers furbishing up their arms of the eighteen twelve war what does it mean sir francis bonhead the new governor of ontario refuses to believe his own ears neither does the family compact realize that there is any danger to their long tenure of power they affect to sneer at those poor patriots of the plough little dreaming that the rights which those poor patriots of the scythe swords are burning to defend will by and by be the pride of england's colonial system the story of plot and counterplot cannot be told in detail here it is too long but on the night of monday december fourth toronto wakes up to a wild ringing of college bells the rebel patriots have collected at montgomery's tavern outside toronto and are advancing on the city poor mackenzie's plans have gone all awry four thousand patriots have pledged themselves to assemble at the tavern on december seventh but dr rolfe or some other friend in the city sends word that the date has been discovered the only hope of seizing the city is for them to come sooner and mackenzie arrives at the tavern on december third with only a few hundred followers who have neither food nor firearms and i doubt much if they had even definite plans of such there are no records before van egmond comes from seaforth doubt and dissension and distrust of success depress the insurgents and it doesn't help their spirits any to have four toronto scouts break through their lines in the dark and back again with word of their weakness though they plant a fatal bullet neatly in the back of one poor loyalist if they had advanced promptly on the fourth as planned they might have given sir francis bonhead and fitzgibbons a stiff tussle for possession of the city for toronto's defenders at this time numbered scarcely three hundred but during the days mackenzie's followers delayed north of young street allan mcnab came up from hamilton with more troops by wednesday the sixth 
there were twelve hundred loyalist troops in toronto and noon of the seventh out marches the loyalist army by way of young street bands playing flags flying horses prancing under fitzgibbons and mcnab it was a warm sunny day from the windows of young street women waved handkerchiefs and cheered at street corners the rabble shouted itself hoarse just as it would have cheered mackenzie had he come down young street victorious mackenzie's sentries had warned the insurgents of the loyalists coming mackenzie was for immediate advance Van Eggman thought it stark madness for five hundred poorly armed men to meet twelve hundred troopers in pitched battle. But it was too late now for stark madness to retreat. The loyalist bands could be heard from Rosedale. The loyalist bayonets could be seen glittering in the sun. Mackenzie posted his men a short distance south of the tavern in some woods. One hundred and fifty on one side, on the road west of Young Street, one hundred on the other side. The rest of the insurgents, being without arms, did not leave the rendezvous. In the confusion and haste the tragic mistake was made of leaving Mackenzie's carpet-bag with the list of patriots at the tavern. This gave the loyalists a complete roster of the agitators' names. Fifteen minutes later it was all over with Mackenzie. The big guns of the Toronto troops shelled the woods, killing one patriot rebel and wounding eleven, four fatally. In answer, only a clattering spatter of shots came from the rebel side. The patriots were in headlong fight with the mounted men of Toronto in pursuit. It was over with Mackenzie, but, as the sequence of events will show, it was not all over with the cause. A book of soldiers' yarns might be told of hairbreadth escapes, the aftermath of the rebellion. Knowing his side was doomed to defeat, Dr. Rolfe tried to escape from Toronto. He was stopped by a loyalist sentry, but explained he was leaving the city to visit a patient. Farther on he had been arrested by a loyalist picket when luckily a young doctor who had attended Rolf's medical lectures, all unconscious of Mackenzie's plot, vouched for his loyalty. Riding like a madman all that night, Rolf reached Niagara and escaped to the American frontier. A reward of one thousand pounds had been offered for Mackenzie, dead or alive. He had waited only till his followers fled, when he mounted his big bay horse and gallop for the woods, pursued by Fitzgibbon's men. The big bay carried him safely to the country, where he wandered openly for four days. It speaks volumes for the staunch fidelity of the country people to the cause which Mackenzie represented, that during these wanderings he was unbetrayed, spite of the one thousand pounds reward. Finally, he too succeeded in crossing Niagara. Van Egmond was captured north of Young Street, but died from disease contracted in his prison cell before he could be tried. Lount, another of the leaders, had succeeded in reaching Long Point, Lake Erie. With a fellow patriot, a French voyageur, and a boy, he started to cross Lake Erie in an open boat. It was wintry, stormy weather, 
for two days and two nights the boat tossed a plaything of the waves the drenching spray freezing as it fell till the craft was almost ice-logged for food they had brought only a small piece of meat and this had frozen so hard that their numb hands could not break it weakening at each oar-stroke they had at last saw the south shore of lake erie rise on the skyline but before the close muffled refugees had dared to hope for safety on the american side a strong south wind had sprung up that dove the boat back across the lake towards grand river to remain exposed longer meant certain death they landed were mistaken for smugglers and thrown into jail where lount was at once recognized in west ontario one dr ducombe had acted as mackenzie's lieutenant allan mcnab had come west with six hundred men to suppress the rebellion realizing the hopelessness of further resistance ducombe had tried to save his men by ordering them to disperse to their homes he himself with his white horse took to the woods where he lay in hiding all day and it was a canadian december and foraged at night for berries and roots judge ermetoner gives the graphic story of ducombe's escape starvation drove him to the house of a friend the friend was out and when the wife asked who he was ducombe laid his revolver on the table and made answer i am ducombe and i must have food here he lay disguised so completely with nightcap nightdress and all as the visiting grandmother of the family that loyalist who saw his white horse and came in to search the house looked squarely at the recumbent figure beneath the bedclothes and did not recognize him to come at last reached his sister's home near london don't you know me he asked standing in the open door waiting for her recognition in the few weeks of exposure and pursuit his hair had turned snow white his friend suggested that he cross to the american frontier dressed as a woman and the disguise was so perfect curls of his sister's hair bobbing from beneath his bonnet that two loyalist soldiers gallantly escorted the lady's sleigh across unsafe places in the ice ducombe waited till he was well on the american side and his escorts on the way back to sarnia then he emitted a yell over the back of the cutter go tell your officers you have just helped dr ducombe across having lost the fight for a cause which events have since justified it is not surprising that the patriots on the american frontier now lost their heads they formed organizations from detroit to vermont for the evasion of canada and the establishment of a republic these bands were known as hunters lodges rolf and decom repudiated connection with them but mackenzie was head and heart for armed invasion from buffalo space forbids the story of these raids they will fill a book with such thrilling tales as made up the border wars of scotland the tumultuous year of eighteen thirty seven closed with the burning of the caroline mackenzie had taken up quarters on navy island in niagara river 
the Caroline, an American ship, was being employed to convey guns and provisions to the insurgents' camp. On the Canadian side of the river camped Allan McNabb with 2,500 loyalist troops. Looking across the river with field glasses, McNabb seized the boat landing field guns on Navy Island for Mackenzie. I say, exclaims the future Sir Allen, this won't do. Can't you cut that vessel out, Drew? Addressing a young officer. Nothing easier, answers Drew. Do it then, orders McNabb. In spite of the fact nothing was easier, Drew's men came near disaster on their midnight escapade. The river below Navy Island was three miles wide and only a mile and a half from the rapids above the falls, with a current like a mill-race. Secretly seven boats, with four men in each, set out at half-past eleven, a few friends on the river bank wishing Drew Godspeed. Out from shore Drew draws his boats together and tells the men the perilous tasks they have to do. If anyone wishes to go back, let him do so now not a man speaks. Halfway across, firing from the island drives two of the boats back. The rest get under shadow from the bright moonlight and go on. The roar of the falls now become deafening, and some of the rowers call out they are being drawn down the center of the river astern. Drew fastens his eyes on a light against the American shore to judge of their progress. For a moment, though, the men were rowing with all their might. The light ashore and the boats in mid-river seemed to remain absolutely still. Finally the boats gained an oar's length, then a mighty pull and all forge ahead. A strip of land hides approach to the Caroline. The Canadian boatmen lie in hiding till the moon goes down, then glide in on the Caroline, when Drew mounts the decks. Three unarmed men are found on the shore side. Drew orders them to land. One fires point blank. Drew slashes him down with a single saber cut. The rest of the crew are roused from sleep and sent ashore. The Caroline is set on fire in four places. She is moored to the shore ice. Axes chop her free. She is adrift. Drew, the last to jump from her flaming decks, to his place in the small boats. The flames are seen from the Canadian side, and huge bonfires light up the Canadian shore. By their gleam Drew steers back for McNabb's army, and is welcomed with cheers that split the welkin. Slowly the flaming vessel drifted down the channel to the falls. Suddenly the lights went out. The Caroline had either sunk on a reef or gone over the falls. One man had been killed on the decks, as the vessel was American and had been raided in American ports. The episode raised an international dispute that might in another mood have caused war. Lot and Matthews pay for the rebellion on the gallows, upon which the imperial government expressed regret that the Toronto executive found such severity necessary. Later, when the hunters' lodges raid Prescott, and Van Schultz, the Polish leader, with nine others, is executed at Kingston, a great 
revulsion of feeling takes place against the family compact. The execution of the patriots did more for their cause than all their efforts of twenty years. The Canadian people had supported the agitators up to the point of armed rebellion. That gave British blood pause, for the Britisher reveres the law next to God, but when the governing ring began to glut its vengeance under cloak of loyalty, that was another matter. After the execution of Lount and Matthews, the family compact could scarcely count a friend outside its own circle in Upper Canada. It is worth remembering that the young lawyer who defended Van Schultz in the trial at Kingston was John A. Macdonald, who later took foremost part in framing a new constitution for Canada. End of section 45 Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.